Hello listeners, Kathy Lawless here, Life Story Curator, bringing you this podcast series, How Did I Get Here? A series of interviews designed for people who are just starting out in their career or who are in transition are possibly feeling stuck and giving them access to stories from people who are established in their career or in some cases, just starting out so that they might be moved, touched and inspired to move forward in a different way. Today, I'm very excited to be interviewing Michelle Ashby. Uh, She is a corporate director and entrepreneur. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Kathy. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for being here. This is such a great idea. And Michelle and I met through a peer advisory board, which is part of her entrepreneurial uh, journey and mine as well. But uh, before we get into kind of what it means to be a corporate director and entrepreneur, I always like to start with some icebreaker questions so that listeners get a sense of who is Michelle Ashby. So... Mm -hmm. Let's start with where you grew up, how many siblings you have, where you are in the birth order, and how that might have influenced you as a young person, and then I guess through your life. Yeah. So I grew up in Denver, Colorado. Oh, a native. I'm a native, exactly. Born at St. Anthony's Hospital, and um, I am the oldest of three, and the way that I have... uh, a younger sister and brother who are oh. twins. Oh, wow. And I was three and a half when they were born. So it's very interesting that you ask that because it the way it impacted my life was, think about it, I was the queen of the hop, right? Yeah. For the three and a half years. And then all of a sudden, there are two babies, not one, which takes up both parents because... It takes two to feed them. It takes two to do everything. Wow. And what happened to little Michelle? Yeah. Well, oh and my it's, gosh! And twins are like a, you know, like a phenom, a phenom, oh, right? Oh, so then exactly. that was a big was draw. All about the twins, twins, right? So it was like I fell off the planet. <laughs> but I do think that it motivated me in a lot of ways. I made a lot of decisions based on, well, I can take care of myself. And I became very independent. And I think that impacted me a lot. At a very young age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Plus being oldest, it seems like most who I've interviewed, when they talk about being the oldest, they're like, well, I felt I had to be more adventurous. I had to be a role model. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah, and independence is definitely a part of that. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So um, growing up then, did you play sports? Did you play musical instrument? Let's talk about what it was like growing up. You know what? I was an overachiever. So I was in art and I would win blue ribbons in art. I was in the band and I played the flute. I um, didn't play any of the like team sports because back then they didn't have girl teams like softball. They didn't allow girls to play stuff like that. So, um, I, but I played in the front yard with our neighbors all the time. And that was football, cowboys and Indians, gymnastics, you name it. We were out there rolling around, running around, um, riding bikes, you know, Very active. all the time. Oh yeah. We were never in the house ever <laughs> <laughs> except to go to sleep Yeah, and to eat probably. That's right. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. parents had to wrangle you in. Exactly. Right, for that. Yeah. Cool. Now do you uh, speak any other languages? No. No, no, I do not. I wish I did, and I've made attempts to. And um, so, um, but I do have a trick. When I travel internationally to a foreign country, I actually do study their language. So I've studied Mandarin Chinese, I've studied Russian, I've studied um, French and Spanish, and um, I do practice, you know, at least some phrases and that type of thing. But, um, so you have a little bit of knowledge that you can kind of mm-hmm. converse if you were to get in trouble or at least not feel too inadequate. Yeah, exactly. Because, again, you're an overachiever. <laughs> of course. Right. <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> so uh, we're going to just two questions now on, uh, the, on a scale basis here. So on, on the fun meter, on a scale of one to five, where would you put yourself? One being couch potato, five, life of the party. Where do you see yourself well, having? It's interesting because um, I think I may be a four. I mean, I love to go and do and meet people and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then there's times when I'm really pooped or whatever, and I want to sit back and, like, kind of take it all in. So I would say I'm a four. You're a four. Mm-hmm. And on any given day, you can be a one on your couch well, <laughs> if needed. I don't do that. but Oh, don't. Don't ever be a one. Not really. Hmm. No, even when it's like – but I think it's more privacy than it is um, – you know, it's like being introverted hmm. okay. versus extro- extroverted. Extrovert, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then in terms of taking risks, where are you on the risk meter? One to five, same scale. One being low risk, high risk being five. I can get really excited about something and that'll put me at the five because I forget to do my due diligence. You know, like I'll hear something about a really great idea 
or meet an entrepreneur who's um, tackling an issue and I get super excited. I have a track record of doing this and I'll invest in it and, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then it'd be like, oh, didn't work, you know, <laughs> great idea. But I want, you know, I like to be, a, you know, that early adopter kind ah, of thing. Uh-huh. So in that regard, I find that I'm on the higher end, which is good because it doesn't, prov- it doesn't stop me from going out and starting new ventures. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's bad because I've started a lot of new ventures and not all of them work. So mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a curse and also a blessing. Yeah, yeah I think so. Well, and I, I get the sense from you. I, I don't see fear. I don't see that fear comes into play on things. Not too much. Not until yeah. after I've jumped in, and then I'm like, what the oh, heck what did, did I, I do? just do? <laughs> right? Yeah. Should research yeah. this more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's my advice: is like, make sure you do your due diligence. I feel like I'm much better at that now mm-hmm. than I was in the past. You know, because I have learned lessons. Um, around that so oh very cool well thanks for sharing your lessons because mm-hmm. others can learn from that yeah so let's talk a little bit about what you're doing today and then we'll get into the how did I get here part of that okay so what does it mean to be a corporate director I mean everybody kind of knows entrepreneur but talk about being a corporate director and an entrepreneur together yeah so I'm a corporate director on two public companies um, one is traded on the New York Stock Exchange and one is traded on the Toronto um, Stock Exchange and being a corporate director is actually like being at the very top. So let's say that you love to be the boss. Well, the ultimate boss is a board of director. Why? Because in a public company, they actually are sit on top of, if you will, their position is above the CEO mm-hmm. and above the executive team. So the board of directors really is responsible for looking out for the benefit of the corporation, the executive team, the management, all the operations, the shareholders, the share price, there's many, many, many responsibilities. Many. So you wow. are at yeah. the very pinnacle of responsibility for companies. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, um, it's a big job. So you've got one foot then on the whole corporate side. Right. Then you've got another foot in entrepreneurial. Talk about right. how yeah. you play in both spaces. Because most right. of the people I talk with aren't in those in, in both. Well, I, you know, my mentors are all men from my backgrounds in mining and finance. And and um, they ran companies and sat on boards. I ran companies and sat on boards. That's actually pretty normal mm-hmm. to do that. So um, it is, in my world, it didn't seem unusual. Ah, okay. Okay. Um, and actually, it's very, it's very helpful to be an entrepreneur and to be out there, you know, fighting the dragons, raising capital, you know, dealing with issues in your in your own company or your own corporation mm-hmm. while you are in another company because you, or while you're in uh, on a board of directors because those life experiences add value to you as a director sitting at the table. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, when you're out there actually doing it, it's easier than then you have a respect and an admiration and appreciation for what the CEO mm-hmm. and the rest of the team is doing, right? Because mm-hmm. you've done it before. Right. Done it exactly. yourself. Well, and you're bringing that experience, you know, to the table. That's one of the reasons why you've been selected to sit in mm-hmm. that seat. So would you feel like you're in your dream job right now? You're doing, you're right where you should be? I do. I actually do. And it's really interesting to, to be able to say that. Very cool. Well, let's uh, let's go back then and find out how we got to where you are today. Okay. So back, you look junior high, high school. Did you always have this kind of, I want to be the boss, I want to be an entrepreneur kind of spirit? Or what did you want to be when you grew up? I didn't have, an, I did not have a label. So I was never the type of kid that would say, I can be, a, I want to be a doctor, I want to be a lawyer, I want to, you know. Yeah, I was the same no. way. I had no clue. I had no idea what was coming. And, um. And of course, back then too, I think, you know, I was kind of a little boy crazy and it was more about, you know, my role models were still in like getting married and Mm -hmm. I was just at the cusp of, of women really changing over into careers and having choices. So what, if you don't mind sharing, what decade was this kind of when you were at that age, junior high, high school? Oh, in the sixties. In the sixties. Okay. Right. And seventies actually for high school. Yeah. yeah. So it was really at the at the turning point. So I was um, kind of too young for Woodstock, you know, <laughs> uh-huh. right, for all that stuff. But I'm, you know, an eight-year-old watching people running around naked 
at these music festivals going, well, that's interesting, yeah. right? And the hippie thing was going on like crazy mm-hmm. at the time. So there was a, you know, and then at the same time you have, you know, uh, students being killed at, at universities and all the Vietnam War, um, you know, protests and that type of thing. It was a volatile time. And when I watch those kind of documentaries now as an adult looking back, it, it's like, whoa, we were impacted very dramatically, you know, by Martin Luther King and President Kennedy and, and just those kinds of things going on, Woodstock, et cetera, et cetera, landing on the moon. Yeah. God, it was just so, it was so stimulating, but in so many ways. And so I think that was part of like, how can you possibly know what you want to be when all this is going on, especially for a little girl? Yeah. When the world is just starting to open up, right? Mm-hmm. And then I went to an all-girls Catholic school, and the whole focus there was career. We did not learn home ec. We did not learn typing. It was about how smart can you be. I came out of that experience with uh, dedication to my understanding about myself was I would go out into the world and compete on my intellect and my experience. Wow. Yeah, that was it. Wow. The expectations were very high. Condoleezza Rice was a year ahead of me. So it was that caliber of people. And they were all way smarter than me. Most of them were way richer than me. I think I was one of the poorest kids in the in the whole school because mm-hmm. I went on a scholarship and a grant and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't care. You know, we wore uniforms and nobody knew who had what. Yeah. Oh, yeah, because you all looked the same. We all looked the same. But, and we, then, but it was all about intellect. It was. Like, we were competing and... about our grades and, you know, this class and that class. And I remember sitting on the floor in the hallway next to the soda machine, and we would be studying for a history exam or something, and we're testing each other. You know, we're shooting questions at each other to get ready for a test. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, that was our environment. Did we have fun, too? Oh, yeah. We had balls <laughs> of fun. For sure, we did. Because um, I was a cheerleader. I was a Mullen cheerleader. So all-girls school provided the cheerleaders for the all-boys school. So oh, I'll leave that to your imagination. That, that okay. was fun. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It was great. So did you go on to college out of high school then? or what? No, I didn't. Ah. Well, I take that back. I went to nursing school for a semester. And I dropped out. I was um, back then. Nursing school meant you went right into the hospital and did the you know hands-on mm-hmm. um, stuff. You didn't go study for two years and then get to get into the hospital. Luckily, I got in the hospital first. I was very my immune system was really low, and I got a lot of illnesses hmm. while I was trying yeah. to do school. And I was working full time, and I was you know living at home, and I was partying. Um, but I got staff and strep and all these things. And anyway, it just, uh, I took my final exam with a temperature of like 105 and I couldn't even read. Um, but those nuns, I mean, those nuns, the nurses were worse than the nuns that I went to school with. I was like, these people are so mean. This is not for me. I know. Right. Yeah. So I, anyway, I love to work. I've worked since I was 12. And I decided I'm just going to go get another job. I already had one full-time job, so I got another part-time job. Hmm. So I had a 40-hour-a-week job, and then I added another 20-hour-a-week job. And and what types of jobs were these? So at the time, I was running a plant store in Cinderella City, which was the hot new mall in oh, Colorado. I remember in Cinderella City. It, it was very cool to be working there. I managed a store, plant store there. And, then, and you're what, 18, 19? Yeah, right. And, they, okay. Yeah. But because I had all this... Because I started in greenhouses when I was 12 because I had all this background in planting and greenhouses. They gave me the management position because I knew about that part of it. Yeah. And a botanist owned the, owned the store. And so he taught me the botanical part of it. He was actually one of the designers of the Denver Botanic Gardens. Very, wow. Yeah, Dr. Ba- Bybee. Bybee. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. So, and then I got a part-time job at a at a clothing store. Oh, so then you get discounts for clothes and <laughs> yeah, it was a very nice boutique women's store. And mm-hmm. the woman who was managing it met me because we all worked in the mall and we chatted and she said, if you ever, ever, ever want to work somewhere, I want you, I want you. So she, she, I went to her and said, I'm, 
I'm looking if you want to give me a couple hours. And she goes, you're in, you're in. How many can I get? So mm -hmm. I ended up working there and all that money went to clothes, of course. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I was 18, graduated, you know, lived in my first apartment with my girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And we were having fun skiing yeah. and playing and dating and all that. It was great. And you had to look good. <laughs> of course. Had to be cute. <laughs> had to be cute. <laughs> so then what are the next jobs after that? So I was, um, I got married. Oh, yeah, okay. so I got married very young. I actually got married when I just turned 20. Mm -hmm. and um, But I worked in plant stores all the way through my career. So I ended up then in plant stores. We lived on the Western Slope. And then I got into you know floral design. I ran design centers, all that kind of stuff. So my knowledge was wide and deep in that, in that um, space. In that space. Okay. Like the next step would have been to open my own shop. But I watched how shop owners had to struggle and what they went through. And I was like, that's not, I don't want to do that the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I want to do something else. And I had a couple babies, at, you know, along the way. Yeah. So I took a break from working outside the home and created a handcraft business. I used to make handcrafted items that I would sell in shops throughout Colorado. So I supplied the handcrafted items to 13 stores in Colorado throughout like three or four years. So something you could do at home yeah. while you were raising taking, a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So again, very innovative. Yeah. Right. With your time and what you had available at, at the time. Too. Yeah. yeah. So isn't that the key, right? Like look mm -hmm. around and find, you know, this is it. Like, don't look at what you can't do. Look at what you can do. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some people might look at that as, oh, I can't work outside the home or I can't do this or I can't do that. And you, right. But you looked at it as, well, while I'm here, what else can I be doing? Right. Wow. There's always an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I'm always aware of like, you know, like looking and just observing, listening. Listening is a big thing. Yeah. And when you pick up on things that there's a need, find a need and fill it. That's the kind of thing that works. These old adages really are true. They mm -hmm. work. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you get into mining then? I know that's a big part of your background. Yeah. Is so, um, so while I was still married, but my, I, I wanted to get in back out into the workforce, mm -hmm. didn't want to do the plant thing. So I had a mentor at the time that was helping me and we were going through like, what are, what are the kind of jobs could I have without a degree? Ah, and okay. as a mom that would get me home, like maybe on time, my son was just getting ready to go into kindergarten. My daughter was starting um, preschool. And so a stockbroker came up. You don't have to have a degree to be a stockbroker. You have to pass a test, but you don't have to get ah, your license, uh -huh, right? Uh -huh. So I kind of went in the back door. Oh, yeah. What do you mean back door? I mean, you still had to take the test. I right? did the test, right. But I didn't work in a firm for a couple of years before I got to go take the test. So you, it's not like you and I could just walk in off the street and take this test and go get a brokerage license. You have to be sponsored by a firm. Oh, okay. Which means most of the time you work there. Mm -hmm. So go back to my girl, my high school, where I went to school with all these girls, very influential girls, and a couple of them, their dads were brokers. And so I put my little feelers out and ended up speaking with one of the fathers of one of the ladies I went to high school with and graduated. And he offered to sponsor me so that I could go take the test. So oh. I studied for the test and I passed it the first time, which apparently is not that common, mm -hmm. and um, started looking for work. His firm offered me a job as well. I had 12 interviews and I have four offers. Wow. Um, but this is during EEOC, right? Equal opportunity. Mm -hmm. was, this was the first wave. We were the first wave of women coming in, and the companies needed to meet quotas. So back then, there were quotas. Oh, interesting. Right. Okay. So again, another kind of pivotal moment for you. So what, what decade is this now? 80s. 80s. Okay, yeah, EEOC. That's right at the tail end of... Yeah. Or, or right at... That started in the 70s, right? EEOC, and then it was all being implemented and really... Taking yeah. a foothold then in the 80s. Yeah. Okay. Right. So, you, but the good news is, is now you're in. You're right. in, right? Right. So mm -hmm. I get in. I'm a rookie broker. I was the worst rookie. I was the worst stockbroker ever for the first two years. I'm not kidding. Um, I can admit it now, but back then it was so hard. Um, you know, cold calling, 100 calls a day, all the stuff you hear about is true. I mean, I can tell you stories about just that part that would yeah. knock your socks off. But um, I decided to specialize in mining stocks because as a rookie, they would give you all these uh, accounts that they'd already churned and burned. They call it churned and burned. And a lot of them had penny mining stocks. 
and I would talk to the clients and ask them, you know, you know, can I help you? And they would say, well, what's happening with ABC Gold Company? Because I invested a lot of money in that. And I said, well, I don't know, but I'm going to call and find out, and I will call you back. So I'd hang up, and I'd look it up, and I'd call the president. This is before internet, right? I'd call the president of the company and have a chat, ask him questions, take my notes, hang up, call the client back, and give him the update on what was happening. Because you called the president of this company. Right. And I did that over and over and over again. And was that normal? Did other people do that? No. Nobody specialized. Everyone around me was like selling, you know, just to make a commission. Yeah. I wanted to be the best at something. And I really Mm. liked, Mm -hmm. why did I get attracted to that? I liked the philosophy of the investors. So um, people call them gold bugs, but investors in that particular sector, in that gold as a currency, have a whole philosophy about our economy, about our history, about who controls our money, about all these things. They've just gave me this huge education. And I decided those were the kind of people I wanted to serve. And that's who I wanted to work with. So that's where I went. Wow. Yeah. So I just educated myself again. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up, you know, I just like would introduce myself to geologists, presidents of companies, engineers. I got invited to my first mining conference in Spokane in 1985. I went up there and a professor of mining who I'd been on the phone with, one of those guys that I had talked to mm-hmm. about his company, said, come up and I'll introduce you to people. And I go and I'm the only woman out of like 600 men except for the women who are serving the drinks. I'm the only woman that's yeah. actually working in there. And he would literally say, Michelle, give him your business card. This is Jim. Hi, Jim. This is, say, hi, Jim. I'm Michelle. I'm Michelle. Shake their hand, give them their card, and take their card. Okay, next. And he literally walked me around the room like that. So that's the very beginning of, well, you know, the mentorship of what I experienced in my career mm-hmm. and how these gentlemen would take me under their wing and teach me the ropes. And it just went from there all the way up the ladder throughout my career. Wow. Yeah. And they were willing to teach you the ropes. There wasn't, um, I mean, being the only woman in the room, was there any other shenanigans? I don't know how else to call it. Not really. There, no, so it was I a very respectful it, yeah. environment and a learning right. environment. And, yeah. Well, that's good So to what know. I can say is that from the, the mining side, what my experience on the mining in, in, side was awesome. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in the brokerage industry, I had a couple things that happened there. Mm-hmm. Different group, different culture. Yeah. Yeah, but the mining guys were so, oh my God, they were such gentlemen. They really were. And so it was like, I mean, they were like, come on, let's go on a mine tour. You know, we're underground, we're putting on all this gear. You know, I mean, I never, ever felt uncomfortable or like I was put in a, you know, compromising situation. I always felt safe, taken care of, you know, um, equal, treated equally, if not better than equal. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's impressive. So how did you know you needed to specialize? Were you coached on that? Or is it just that this continued to, each time you got into the space, it felt right. It felt like good people. I'm just going to keep going this way. Well, I think it's, you know, it takes time to do that. Mm -hmm. And it's really, again, it's about listening and, and observing. So I'm in the bullpen of this brokerage firm and I'm watching all these guys that are, you know, selling, and you can hear everybody, right? So when they would close the sale, they'd slam the phone, you know, and they'd yell and stuff. And there was a lot of, there were a lot of drugs going on um, that I was aware of where they talked about it. Um, back then, there were even strippers that would be, come into the bullpen, like somebody's birthday, a stripper would come in in the middle of the day. And yeah, yeah, exactly. That was not the kind of place, that wasn't what I wanted to be, right? Yeah. And... But, but from a financial standpoint, I'm raising two kids. Oh, and I got divorced in the midst of that, Ah, right when I started. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the midst of dealing with my divorce, and now I've got to support my children, and I've got to be, you know, I want to do this for a long time. I don't want to just make it a short-term kind of thing. I am not churning and burning people. I'm investing with them. And so I just felt like that felt better for me as a philosophy. And I was lucky to be in a small group within the firm where they supported that and actually encouraged me. They liked the idea. They're like, oh, if somebody wants to specialize in this one thing, let's market her. So they would pay for ads 
for me in the you know OTC Stock Journal. If you're interested in Silver State Mining, contact Michelle da da da, and then they'd have my number. So they supported that, and they it was almost like I gave them a place to throw all their junk that they didn't want to deal with. Mm-hmm. It was very interesting. And it turned out to be very successful for me because I ended up being one of the top five brokers in the whole country in that particular space in gold mining stocks. Wow. Yeah. That is just, that's, that's astonishing, I guess, to hear how you kind of gravitated towards something because of a value-based Right. And yet, and then it turned into being something so powerful. You know, it's funny in the entrepreneurial space, you know, there's so many different coaching techniques and stuff. But, you know, I do hear if you're niche focused, you're so much better off than if you try to be everything to everyone. And it seems like a stockbroker could fall into that. Oh, I need to know a lot about, or maybe a little bit about a lot of things. Whereas you're like, no, I really want to, I want to specialize. You're exactly right. And that was my observation. I was watching these guys, they do nothing about everything. And I was like, I need to know what I'm talking to my clients about. I went into this to be the people's broker. Mm-hmm. I wanted my clients to be educated. And I started writing articles in you know, local publications, the OTC Stock Journal, the Speculator Magazine. I had columns from almost day one of how to, how to trade a stock. How does this work? You know, and I always have been, you know, kind of that way, created my own newsletter. We didn't have podcasts back then, (laughs) but I can tell you, I would like cut and paste things onto pages and then make copies and hand mail them like, you know, snail mail every month. Yeah. Every month. So you were curious about things. And so as you were learning, then you just said, well, I'm just going to publish this and other people have to be curious too. Right. There was never even an inclination that, well, maybe everybody already knows this? No. You, you knew no. right away. No one knew it. No. I just, I just you know, like, I'm, I, again, I was mentored by these wonderful people. I was mm-hmm. also ended up in a small group of ne- newsletter writers who were really influential throughout the country in investment, investing. And so they also were helping me to find product, you know, meet companies that were good ones to invest in. And, you know, kind of decoding how, how do you make yourself stand out as a broker as opposed to being like everybody else. Yeah. And ultimately what happens then is that the, then the clients come and find you. When they're looking for the, who's the best person, you know, to put the roof on my house, they're going to go look for, you know, referrals. Mm-hmm. And that's how I ended up building my book. Wow. Yeah. So I went from the worst rookie because the cold calling thing was really probably not the best thing for me mm-hmm. into being one of the top brokers in that specific field with all my business being referred to me as opposed yeah. to me soliciting for it. Yeah. So you didn't have to solicit work, but you, you earned the work, you earned the trust yeah. because of your knowledge, your, your reputation. connections, reputation. Oh, yeah. That's a great lesson. Yeah. Okay. So what else? How did, how did things, how did you go from there to where you are today then? Well, from there, I um, started, uh, I was a mining analyst, and I uh, was, again, still working with these small groups of people, men, and um, I realized that here's the, here was the crux of it. I was doing a lot of business in Canada, as well as the United States. A lot of companies in Canada are in the mining industry. The Canadian companies knew how to promote and raise money. And mining is very capital intensive. You have to go back and raise more money over and over as mm-hmm. you develop a project. You don't just raise the money once and, and you're done. It's not a one and done. And the companies that were based in Denver, in my own backyard, here's the, here's the comparison. I'd call a company in Canada and say, can I get some information about you? Talk to them. They'd send me a package. It'd be four color, beautifully put together, all that kind of stuff. I'd talk to someone in Denver right down the street from me on 17th Street. Mm -hmm. And two weeks later, I'd get a dog-eared 10K with, you know, coffee stains on it. Yeah. They didn't understand that their marketing was non-existent. So this was in where the challenge lies. And yet they felt like their projects were just as good as the Canadians. Why aren't we raising any money? Why don't they just give it to us? You know, we're just as good as they are. And, I, and I'm in the middle. I'm, ah, I'm uh-huh. observing going, well, I can tell you why. But if I tell you, you're going to like probably not going to believe it, do it or whatever. So the idea came up. What if I put these guys together and market them to the world as a group as opposed to one at a time? But the first step I had to do was to get them to recognize 
that they had a problem. Mm, yeah. So I convinced a number of them to go on a retreat in Aspen. I hired a male facilitator because I knew they wouldn't listen to a young, you know, beautiful woman mm-hmm. that's not in the mining industry who's on the finance side. I was an outsider like in four boxes. Yeah. So I yeah, hired so a, gender. Yeah. 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 So I, I hired uh, this, this male facilitator and we sat down and I said, here are the outcomes I want. So he did, he directed the whole thing. We did this this weekend, got him in a room. I literally had two guys that, that sat next to each other in this meeting. They were in the same office building downtown, five floors apart. They'd never met each other. They were so competitive with each other that they wouldn't even talk. So this was the first time that this room of people had come together. And I was like, man, this could blow up. It could be bad. So and here's your big risk taking, So here's right? a big risk taking. And one of, the, one of the guys left. He stood up and said, this is breaking antitrust law. I'm out of here. He was an attorney. And he worked for a company that had been through an antitrust issue. And he was very sensitive. And he got up and left. But the rest stayed. And at the end of the day, they said, we get it. We all have the same issue. Thanks for the idea, little girl. <laughs> little Patted girl. me on the head and said, we'll take it from here. And so I thought, wow, well, that was a great effort and great success. And now they're going to just go do it without me. Mm. Yeah. What do you do then? Yeah. You, I've created this idea, started the momentum, and yeah. Yeah. So, so my handful of buddies came back to me and they said, I was like, I'm, I'm, gonna, here's, I'm quitting. I'm not going to do it. And they were like, no, you can't quit because we need you. They're going to fail. You have to keep going. They've done this before, but you're an outsider. You can do this. He, they can't do it because they can't see this, the tree for the forest. Yeah. And they were right. It took about a year. Well, and I think you being an outsider is advantageous because you're more neutral right. of how you might yeah. set up an association exactly. or what have you. Whereas if one or two of them did it, then you think, oh, it's their agenda, yep. self-serving, blah, blah, blah. And that's so, exactly oh, what, what they happens. did. Yeah. Yay, Michelle. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I did is I, I'm still brokeraging, still, still running my book. I'm still raising two kids, and I'm starting a trade association from nothing. So for... The first five years, basically, we were practically bankrupt. And I literally would carry paychecks in my wallet for three months because we didn't have enough money to pay me. So I'm putting together conferences, you know, talking to investors. I'm running my own brokerage thing. I'm doing all of that all at the same time. Wow. When we turned the corner, we started in 1989. When we turned the corner after five years of different, an annual conference every single year, um, and trying different things, we hit the secrets formula. In 1994, we ended up doing a private, by invitation only, institutional investor conference. And that's what was the one that worked. And um, from there, it had, the same thing happened. My reputation grew as building this private conference because there were a lot of other conferences out there but they were all re- what we call retail mm-hmm. and they were open to anybody so you could be in a nursing home and a bus could pull up and they could take you to this thing but my formula was you had to be a qualified institutional investor managing a certain amount of money in order to even get an invitation uh, to get your foot in the door wow right yeah and so very exclusive very exclusive and we invited the ceos of the companies we had the major companies come in from all over the world so ultimately that organization has become the preeminent organization for the gold mining industry as far as you know the investment world goes and um, i ran that for 18 years i developed a european show um, as well Mm -hmm. so there's one in switzerland so my rolodex was made up of the CEOs of all the publicly traded gold mining companies in the world that are publicly traded, which is about 95% of all the gold, and their largest institutional investors all over the world. Not bad. So again, reputation preceded you know, what I did. So I spent most of my job there telling people why they couldn't get in. Oh, because then now all of a sudden now there's a draw. They want to get in. Oh, yeah. But they they, they, they all want access. Pass. The threshold, Cause, yeah. Because I've got, I've got the top of the top, mm-hmm. and they want access, but they got to get through me, because I'm the gatekeeper. Wow. Yeah. So in five years, would you say that was, or what? How what was the time span when you were that rookie broker? 
to oh. now you're telling CEOs or in, you know, institutional investors that they can't come to your That was 20 some. 20 yeah. some years. Yeah. Okay. Right. But this, this is, trade association is still in existence, right? Isn't this right. what you just celebrated a big anniversary? Yeah. They just celebrated their 30th anniversary. And I was... Congratulations. Yeah. And I was um, invited to come back and uh, MC their gala, which was really fun. Wow. Yeah. That must great. have been such a proud moment. I mean... Mm-hmm. Going all the way back to 1989 and looking at what really happened and how did it get started and all the setbacks and the, the trials and tribulations and now 30 years later. Yeah, it's, it's thriving. Not many people can say they built an institution, but I did. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty big. It's pretty wow, big. very yeah. cool. Yes, but I had to move on. okay so then what's the other part of your journey then so 2005 I left the Denver Gold Group because I didn't have ownership a trade association is for it is a not for profit 501c6 it's owned by the membership Mm -hmm. so I had a great salary I was in a great role and I could have stayed there forever I could have been here through the 30 year and the 40 year they never would have let me go um but I need you're antsy you're well I needed more money I wanted to make more money. And um, this is something that's difficult for us to deal with as women. And I've worked with money all my career with brokerage, you know, and clients and investors and all this kind of stuff, right? It's one of the most mysterious things ever in life is our energy as it relates to our money. Yes. yes and yes, yes. Um, so I've been a student of that my entire career, sometimes very successfully and sometimes not. But I was at a point in my life where I'd had the loss of a child. My daughter had died of cancer. And I'm so I, sorry. I know. And I had a um, foundation that I started to um, raise money for research to find a cure for the type of cancer she had. She had Ewing sarcoma, which is a very rare bone cancer. And I thought, man, I'm a successful business person. This can't be that hard. Oh, my God. Running a nonprofit and trying to run, raise money is way different than running a for-profit business mm-hmm. or a trade association yeah. and raising money. So um, so my solution to getting that thing, because it had, was like in, that was it, was, it had been going on for like five years, right? But it was still not to my level of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And um, I decided I needed to make more money so I could write bigger checks myself. That was one's way to do it. That was your why. That was a way to do it. So I have these amazing mentors. I have to mention Frank Justra in Vancouver, who's one of my champions, who said to me, Michelle, if you leave Denver Gold Group and, and go do this for the oil and gas industry, I'll back you. And he, he basically wrote me a check for $50,000. No letter of intent, no loan, no nothing. He just was like, just, what do you need? I believe in you and go I do went, it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I went back home and, and put together a budget because I did the research to figure out how much it would cost to put on one of those events, sent him the budget, he sent me a check for that amount. No questions asked. So I launched, in, I quit my job, launched in the basement of my house in 2005, in the middle of the year, and my revenues by the end of 2006 were over $2 million. Wow. Yeah, like off the So charts. this is another trade association, but in the oil and gas space. No, it was my own business. Oh, There's your own, oh, oh No okay. association. What I did was I took the model I built of these these private conferences that uh-huh. were for investors only, and I duplicated it for the oil and gas industry. So I built programs that were exactly the same, but we had oil and gas companies and their largest investors from around the world. Oh, so there was parts of the model that were the same, but not a trade association. It was just right. more the model of how yeah. do you bring the two... Uh, right. Stakeholders kind of That's together. That's the product, the place. right? Oh, okay. But the structure of the company was, um, you know, a private, privately owned company. So, one hundred percent of that was mine. Yeah. So now I'm able to write checks for a hundred thousand dollars, and I was able to hire a full time executive director to run the foundation. And over fifteen years, we ended up giving away over a million dollars to research, and there are now two um, clinical trials that are running in the United States for Ewing sarcoma, one for a treatment plan and one for a cure. What a difference you've made. How does, I'm getting all tingly. Oh my gosh. 
Yeah, so instead of you feeling like you had to push that rock and keep being the executive director of that nonprofit, right? right? You're like, no, I'm better served to go out here and raise more money and put more money to it and let someone who can and will and will really take that to the next level. Right. right. Remember, I commend you on knowing your strengths and where you can really be powerful and mm-hmm. you're always in that space. Man, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah. It's not that I don't try, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> I was trying to push that yeah. rock, but it wasn't mine to do, yeah. you know? So I think the other part is listening to yourself, you know, like if you keep hitting your head against a wall, cause that's what I used to say. It's like, Oh my gosh, I keep hitting this resistance. Why am I hitting the wall? Why am I hitting the wall? Well, that's the universe's way of telling me you're not supposed to go that way. Go a different Mm -hmm. direction. Mm -hmm. Look somewhere else. You know, either someone else is going to do that for you or it's not for you. Let it go. Right? Wow. Great lessons learned. Yeah. I'm going to be writing that down as I... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um... You know, so where else, I guess, have you gone? So then you did that, um, you created that for-profit company. Then yes, how did you get on boards? But then, you know, today you have your own business and you have some big goals. You're up to some big stuff. So right. let's yeah. get to that now. Right, and- yeah. So I was invited to my first board in 2005. So right when I left the trade association, mm-hmm. I also got invited to my first board of directors. And uh, came out of the blue, had no idea, was a member of the, com- of the organization, one of our top CEOs of a mining company. And I was very honored that he thought and invited me and said yes. And I also brought another woman on the board. And I also recommended a woman for the presidency of the company. Um, so, uh, and she was hired to do that. So this guy is kind of agnostic, you know, he's a great guy. And Mm -hmm. it's not about your gender or whatever. It's about, can you do the job? And are you going to bring to the table what we need? Yeah. And he's always been like that. So anyway, I joined my first board then. And over a period of time, over the last however many years, that's been 14 years, I've been on six public boards, six corporate boards. So a number of boards, but now I'm on two public. Um, So for whatever reasons... You know, you evolve off of boards. You don't stay on them forever. Yeah, there's term um, limits. No. Oh, there's not? No. Oh, okay. Not unless the company dictates it, but no, there are no term limits. Oh, I was thinking, and, I, I've been in the non-profit board space, and there's usually term limits there, so I just uh-huh. assumed that was most boards, but okay. No. See, I guess, see, I need to take your class. That's right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyway, I um, I ran uh, Mine LLC, which was my... A company that I did these amazing conferences and all over the world in the Middle East and Africa and Asia and I had t- uh, strong ties to Europe and the London bankers and that mm-hmm. type of thing. I did that for eight years. I traveled 120 days a year, and wow. my revenues were well over two million, between two and four million, consistently for those eight years until the resource markets went south again. So we saw those. Prices go down in gold and silver and all the metals and everything that I was involved in and oil mm-hmm. and gas. And so. That was at the 2008 yes. 10. No, 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 no. We did great that, during that. Because that was all about real estate yeah, and no, stock we did, market. We and, were yeah. rocking during okay. that. Like our pinnacle was in 2011. That's when we hit uh, our top. Okay. And then it started to drop after that. So in 2013, I decided to take my winnings off the table and shut her down. So I shut her down and um, let everybody go, got out of my lease all that kind of stuff, took six months off, got hired as a consultant. So I went on the road as an executive consultant for a non-mining, non-related to anything I'd ever done before because I was burnt out. Yeah. I needed something new. I, can you tell? I like, yeah. I, I, like to be, I like to be challenged right? yeah. and stimulated. So I worked for them and I was, in, I was their consultant that worked with their top clients, Deloitte, um, Kimberly Clark and um, Kim and uh, Erickson were my accounts. Mm-hmm. So I flew all over North America and did stuff with executives in those companies. So more travel. More travel, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but not quite as much. But I decided it was time for me to go get on some more boards. Why? Because I was tired of all the travel and the, you know, it's a lot, it takes a lot out of you. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, you know, maybe there's something different for me. My male mentors, I watched them climb the ladder, get on three or four boards, retire out, make six figures, and I'm talking like half a million or more, mm-hmm. working part-time on these boards, and they're golfing and fishing and playing with their kids and their grandkids and stuff. And I'm like, oh, maybe it's time for, I'm still, I'm pretty young though. I'm not sure it's time for me, but maybe I'll pursue that. 
So I started down that road thinking, I'm going to get on three or four boards. So I got on, I was on two and I was, you know, all, all of a sudden there's all these articles about there aren't enough women on boards and that, that's right when all that started. So we're talking beginning of 2016 mm-hmm. and um, I was like, really? Like, why not? Now, here's something I'm going to fess to you. Honestly, I didn't have girl. I didn't have a network of women. Yeah, at no, all. you none. No, I was in three decades of men, mm-hmm. and I was perfectly comfortable there. Very successful. I could, you know, I mean, I just loved it. It mm-hmm. was like I was living the dream in those worlds. I didn't belong to any women's groups. Um, I had a handful of women professional friends, but I didn't trust women. So because I'd been stabbed in the back by women along my my own road. Um, it definitely had people who were jealous of me, who wanted to take me down, who whatever, you know, mm-hmm. and men too. I had some men haters, but men are different the way they deal with you than women are. So um, I decided I didn't have a Rolodex in Denver anymore of anybody because I always worked outside yeah, the you, country. Yeah, all your travel. And, right. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I'm just going to network and get to know people here. So I literally would have four or five coffees a day and meetings and I've interviewed men and women but I got more curious about women like why aren't you know why aren't there more women on boards why aren't you on a board and tell me about your you know like what was your career like in a, over 18 months I ended up interviewing about 200 women and I didn't know I was interviewing them I was just being curious yeah really but I doing your research like you do yeah <laughs> but I would take notes and I had this file at home called super women because mm. that's all I could think of to call it. And I put these these things in there. I go, I don't know what those are. And maybe it's a book. Because I was so impressed with the women that I met. And when I would ask men sometimes, like, why aren't there more women on boards? Because we can't find qualified women. I'm like, I don't know if you're really looking. Because I, I got this folder. Some, <laughs> I got some pretty amazing women. But what's missing? What is missing? There is a huge amount of missing. Mm. And that's what I learned with these gaps that were there. Gaps that I didn't have because I was mentored and I was included along the way. Mm-hmm. And so many women were not, even though they were in a much more, I think, dynamic and free kind of um, an accepting world yeah. in corporate America than I was in the very beginning. But somehow I circumvented a lot of that, I think, crossing my entrepreneurial self, my curious self, and, you know, curiosity gets you a long way. And, and then the way I do things. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know what all of that is. But I identified that we need more women to understand how to get on boards. Because we have the qualified women, but they don't know what the lingo is. They don't know how to get on the board. They don't know how to do the executive speak. There's, there, but teaching them that doesn't take long because they're brilliant. They've got the background. They've got the desire to sit at the top. So, you know, here's the deal. I get tired when people just talk about a problem and don't do something Mm. about it. And I was like, so who's doing something? I started researching that. Well, for women only, there were two programs. You could go to Harvard or you could go to Kellogg, but if you fill out the application, you have to be in the C-suite to do it. And Mm. I'm not talking C-suite of your own small company. Yeah, You had to be a C-suite executive well, that leaves out 99% of us. Yeah. That pissed me off. I was like, <laughs> wait a second. That's not fair. Yeah. So I decided to divert from my my kind of path that I was trying to do and get on three or four boards and go skiing. And I said, well, okay, if you do this, you know it's going to be all on, all in. And so I decided to take it on. Mm-hmm. And help other women get on board. So that's where I decided, you know, I'm going to train a thousand women. So we have an army of women who are ready in their 30s to their 70s because there are young women who don't have this mentorship. They're not going to get it where they're at because they're hopping all over the place. You know, it's a different world yeah. these yeah. days. How, where the hell are they going to get that? You know? So this is a program for them all the way up. And um, it's been amazing been an amazing journey the curriculum is very very good because I've already got women that have gone through the program who are now successfully 
on public boards. Well, yeah, your success rate is is super high. So, um, so talk about. I don't even think we mentioned what the name of your organization is. So, yeah, so it's called Ace LLC, mm-hmm. and it's Ace Board Training for Women. And um, there's a website, obviously, acellc.consulting. And I'll and, post that on my website when I yeah. post your interview. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I also have an affiliate company called Corporate Directors International. And that company is the certification arm of the training. So all of the women that go through the course and graduate are then um, given a certification exam. Once they pass that, they are certified by Corporate Directors International as a qualified board candidate. And that designation is the only one that exists in the United States of America. Wow. Yeah, and the only way you can get it is to go through this course and be a woman right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, amazing, and as usual with your normal um, zest and curiosity. I mean, it's it's amazing. I, I get to see you in the peer advisory group mm-hmm. and come in with, you know, so I've been part of that now, what, a year and a half, I think, with you. Mm-hmm. You've been on it longer uh-huh. and you're further ahead in kind of your, um, I think, curve on your entrepreneurship than I am. But it's amazing to see how you just continue to take your product offering and then expand it and expand it. And, you know, within... Uh, one month time frame, you'll come back. Oh yeah, I filmed and created my online course, and come back. Oh, now I've created this, and now I've created this. I mean, it's it's very impressive. So, well, I got to do it in a fast. I want to still get back on the ski slope. So, uh, so I'm you want to get back to that? I'm very motivated to get through, uh, get this done as quickly as possible. Not about me, but about the marketplace. We're in a bull market for women on boards right now, mm-hmm. and it won't last forever. Yeah. So there's a time sensitivity. Like this intensity is only going to last a certain period of time. And I know that. So I mean, I can tell it intuitively. And so it's like, you got to go. You got to get them ready and ready to rock and roll. And let's get this past that, you know, into that curve where it hits a norm. Yeah. Right. I'm looking for parity. I want 50 50. I don't want 30. I don't want 20. I want 50. Yeah. Like, why would you only go for 20 or 30? I know. Well, and that's kind of what some of the goals are. And then companies aren't even there yet. Yeah. And they're already in that mode of, oh, we're fine. We're fine because we're on our way there. And it's like, well, how fast are you going to get there? And it's really not going to make a difference until you're there at 50. Yeah. So my my research showed that at the pace we were were going at getting women on boards, it would take us 70 years. Not yeah, seven zero. Seven zero. Seven zero. That is crazy. Right. So that's another thing that pissed me off. So when I get mad, I usually move. Like mm-hmm. it's like I either have to do something or I have to like I have to find somebody else who's taking care of that. Yeah. You know? And then you can throw your energy behind that. Maybe or maybe investment. Yeah. Or just, yeah. you know, like, oh good. That's somebody else has got that covered. But this was really clear. It was like nobody has this covered. And after all the research I'd done, I was like, hmm, really? Am I, gonna, am I the right person to do this? And I got the answer. Like, I was literally, like, channeled this whole thing. I wow. mean, I got up in the middle of the night, wrote it on a, you know, legal pad. Everything. Mm-hmm. What does it look like? How much would it cost? What's the curriculum? If I were going to do this, how would it look? And that's what it is. So it's just manifesting exactly that vision. Wow. Well, Michelle, I could talk to you all afternoon about <laughs> what you've got going on, and I've got a bunch of questions. So we might have to do Michelle Ashby 2.0 Uh-oh. at some point, maybe in about six months, and then we can yeah. come back and revisit um, your progress on your training of a 1,000 women. But yeah. when you look back on your career, talk about maybe a lesson learned or something that you feel really served you that might be helpful for listeners. Ah. Gosh, there's so many things. I think um, really going back to like paying attention to what's going on. So I think the things that have served me is the when I'm able to um, take out think time and really sit down and like if I'm struggling with a challenge, hmm. I you know slow down and do my you know do my research. We're so blessed now with Google because you can you know. We're, it's a blessing and a curse again. Oh, yeah. But the things we can research on our own, yeah. where before we'd have to, like, make phone calls and do, 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 do. But I think it's um, balance, you know, getting that balance of not just always having my foot on the gas and not looking, but stepping back and then 
you know, uh, dealing with the issues that I have. I love the peer advisory group. I think that is one of the best things ever. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I would have had that when I had my prior company because when I closed that company, it was one of the most painful things I ever did. Letting go of my employees was so hard. So, well, you know, so that hard. was one of the things I wanted to ask you was, you know, I, and I hate to be so blunt, did you see it as a failure that you're closing down? I mean, letting people go. I mean, most people might see that as a failure, and that's a big setback for them. And uh, But you talked about it in a way that is, well, I decided to take my chips or my winnings off the table and do something else. So it sounds like maybe you didn't see it as a failure. It was, you know, at the time, I'm sure I used that word, but I was very conscious of why I was making those decisions. Mm -hmm. And um, I knew that my own well-being was was deteriorating, Mm -hmm. that I really didn't have a choice. You know, I said, like, when you're hitting the ball, I was going downhill. And... It, I had to do it. I just knew I had to do it. Yeah. So, um, but I had so many successes. Oh my God. I mean, I had so much money in the bank. How did, but how do you explain to people like, I'm quitting. I'm quitting this. There aren't a lot of books written about that. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff written about how do we make stuff work? How do you make it better? How do you fix your problems? Blah, 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 blah. Hardly anybody talks about what if I want out? And so I didn't have a lot of people to talk to about that. No. That was really, really tough. A lot of therapy, my husband, you know, and taking six months off to take a break was really another key. Yeah. But once I made the, pulled the plug, things started to flow. Like, you know. It, so then you knew, did you know immediately this was the right decision? I knew and, it was. Mm-hmm. I got out of a le- like a two-year lease. I mean, if you read the contract I signed... To have that lease, they could have, you know, charged me for told two years. I mean, it was crazy, mm-hmm. and they and they gave they get they let me out. Wow, you know, they somebody else in the building wanted the space. It just was magical. All the stuff I had that I I sold, I mean, I just watched it like walk out the door and people write me checks. It was really interesting, you know, validated. The decision was the right one. Didn't mean that I didn't hurt my heart and emotionally. I had to heal a lot, but I knew I had made the right choice. Yeah. And I, I guess the realization was I didn't realize how kind of bad off I was. Yeah. You know? When you're in it, it is hard. You know, you mentioned when I keep hitting walls, when I keep hitting walls, you know, a big part of I think success of entrepreneurs or any executive many times is, oh, I'm persistent, right? I don't let challenges and obstacles overcome. But at some point, how do you know when you're hitting the wall and you should move a different direction versus, no, I just have to be passionate and persistent? Mm -hmm. And how do you know? I mean, is it a gut thing? I think it's the combination. Mm -hmm. So there are times when, and and sometimes I didn't see it. Like there there was a time when I was running... uh, the the Denver Gold Group and I had started the foundation for my daughter and I was literally working 14 16 hours a day and my husband was like tapping me on the shoulder and he said you know what you're not here and he goes I don't mean you're not here physically he goes you're not here emotionally and mentally and I don't know why I'm in this marriage if you're not going to be here so I'm just giving you a heads up that I think you're like missing and if you want to be a part of a marriage then you better pay attention because you're going to lose your family and I was like "Uh oh Mm. big red flag yeah but I didn't see it I was just so committed you know yeah I was having a lot of issues though dealing with my grief Mm -hmm. and so I had to get therapy for that and you know back up and not work 16 hours a day yeah I had to let the foundation dwindle and stay with my full-time job because that's what I love doing and that was what I was good at. Mm -hmm. And I had to kind of, you know, let the foundation ride a little bit on a lower um, commitment from my standpoint and get it, that's where I, you know, was able to figure out, wait a second, if I could make a lot more money 
then I could write bigger checks. Yeah. Then I can hire somebody like a legitimate ED who knows how to run nonprofits. And now we're in, back in the race, you yeah. know? So that was how I, my strategy changed. And was that kind of a, an aha moment then? Oh, if I do this, then... It all fell together yeah. kind of, to, you know, at the same time. But it sounded like you needed that wake-up call from your husband yeah. to step back. And physically, that couldn't have been good for you. Physically, emotionally, right. and that, yeah, you need to be a, a balanced and well-rounded person. So, And yeah. I know you, you need your skiing. Yeah. <laughs> Which is coming up soon. I know. Thank well, you for sharing your journey. Yeah. And it was one of um, great success stories, but it's also one of there's been trials and tribulations. Right. And, and you have... Um, uh, dealt with it all and yet you're still passionate and moving things forward so thank you for taking on this cause for women on boards listeners if you like today's podcast then please subscribe below so that you can receive future notices of podcasts also if you have any questions for me or michelle please note them on my website lifestorycurator.com and i can incorporate new questions into future interviews or get the questions to michelle directly Thank you and have a great day.